Hey, folks, it's a Sunday. That means it's time to jump into the Ben Shapiro Show mailbag. Reminder, you actually have to be a subscriber over at dailywireplus.com in order to have your question answered in the mailbag. Steve says, hey, Ben, my name is Steve. I'm a father of two, five-year-old girl, three-year-old boy. Could you recommend some TV and book content for my family while we wait for the DW Kids content? Thank you for all you do. We'll continue to support you and your company until my last dollar is spent. So we pre-screen everything that our kids watch on the TVs. Or we use old movies. So there are, there are a bunch of like old kids TV shows like the original Mr. Rogers, for example, that you can still get. Uh, my, my little girl, three-year-old, she watches most episodes, virtually all episodes of Daniel Tiger are okay on PBS. There's, there are episodes of, um, what's the name of that one, Bluey? Uh, is it? Like, there's, some, there's some decent kids shows, but you do have to pre-screen them or at least Google them. I just Google each episode and make sure that it doesn't in- include you know, anything left-wing messaging intended because sometimes they try to sneak stuff in. Keith says, hey, Ben, I think the time is right. How do we create a movement to turn July into American Pride Month? There are a lot of people in the country who love America and traditional American values. All those people need an opportunity to celebrate that love. Just a thought. Well, that would require some actual regularization. So one of the things that religion does, is it creates actual ritual. July 4th has ritual, fireworks, displays, barbecues, parades. We need more of those rituals. Pride Month has tons of rituals. Those rituals include display of particular types of flags, big parties on the White House lawn, giant marches through the center of our cities, every corporation mirroring the political priors of the left wing. You actually need some ritual that people are supposed to do to create a feeling of solidarity. So declaring things American Pride Month wouldn't actually do enough. You actually have to do uh, American Pride Month with a series of rituals that everybody can adopt and then be part of the club. That's how it works. Nicholas says, growing up, I was absolutely terrified of verbal confrontation. For instance, a kid verbally insulted my sister right in front of me. I basically did nothing. It was a humiliating moment. There were other incidents where I didn't stand up for myself. I've never been good on my feet in this moment. This character defect of mine was one of the leading factors in my drug addiction. I'm now seven years sober, but still battle with those resentments. I pray every day and regain my faith in God. Thanks to the folks like you and Matt and Michael and everyone else at the Daily Wire. I know God forgives me and loves me. Why can't I forgive myself? My question is, do you know anyone who battles with these sorts of resentments or any type of resentment? How do they handle them? Thanks for everything you do and God bless. I mean, the, the first way to, to battle resentment is to, be, is to be grateful. Grateful that you escaped to all of that. You have to understand that you don't have a time machine. No one has a time machine. And all of those mistakes that you made, uh, those actually are now turned to the good. So there's a, a beautiful section of the Talmud where it talks about this. There's a, there's a basic idea in Judaism that your sins, when you do repentance, they don't just go away, they turn into merits. So that creates a weird situation. Like why would, why would sins turn into merits? And the idea is that by recanting of those sins and having gone through those bad experiences and done those bad things, you've, you've now used that as an experience to learn from and that shifts over into your merit. And this is true for virtually everything. It's not enough to think, man, I wish I were brave. You have to actually put yourself in situations over and over and over again to be brave. You have to pre-think through. What would you do if a certain situation were to occur? And there's some people who are just genetically encoded that in a time of crisis, they're going to step up and do the thing. But if you're not one of those people, and that's the vast majority of humans, you actually have to prep for that thing. This is what every fireman will tell you. It's what every member of the army will tell you. You actually have to prep so that when the thing happens, you're ready to go. Otherwise, you are relying on instinct. And most people's instinct is, of course, to back away from confrontation. You have to actually prep it. And so if what you're worried about is verbal confrontation, you actually, actually you have to seek out situations where there is verbal confrontation and get comfortable with it and become used to it and make it a habit of mind. That's the only way to overcome bad habits of mind or bad instincts. Zach says, hey, Ben, my six-year-old goes to an amazing charter school that uses classical education. We also volunteer there and are very pleased with the way they teach. However, one of his classmates comes from a household with two dads. He recently asked his mom, my wife, about this. She said I should take the lead in talking about this. I'm more than willing to take this role, but I'm not sure what I should say. My son knows nothing about LGBTQ, 
A, B, C, D, E, F, 36 plus minus. I don't want to introduce him to the concept that's young. His reasoning as a six-year-old is that the kid is a handful, and so he needed to get a second dad to keep him in line since he doesn't have a mom. That's a fun idea, but my son has a near-perfect memory with some obsessive nature, will undoubtedly bring this issue up again several times over the next few months. How would you talk to a six-year-old about this issue? Well, again, you know, this is one of the problems with not sending your kid to a religious school. So I sent my kid to a religious school where, you know, traditional marriage is not only the standard, it is an actual requirement. Uh, you know, the, the fact is that Family admission to my shul is not available to same-sex couples because it's an Orthodox shul. And the same thing presumably is true of the schools where my kids attend. But putting that aside, how would you talk to a six-year-old about this issue? What, what I would say to, to my six-year-old is there are certain kids who are not lucky enough to have a mom. This is a kid who's unlucky enough to not have a mom. And you know the, the fact that, that he has you know, two men who live with him does not make up for the fact that he doesn't have a mom. There should be a mom and a dad in his house, and you should feel bad for him that he only has two men who live with him. That is, that, that, that is what I would say. There's no need to get into the sexual component of what's happening. Dennis says, hey, Ben, with RFK Jr. running as a Democrat, what do you think of him being a spoiler in the elections, given the presidency to whomever it is that is running against Biden on the Republican side? Um, you know, it's unclear to me who he would draw more votes from if it were, say, Donald Trump versus Biden. I feel like a lot of Trump voters actually like RFK Jr. In fact, I saw a rumor yesterday that RFK Jr. was actually reaching out to the Trump campaign with the possibility that he joins the Trump ticket, which would be a fascinating and bizarre ticket. We would have moved beyond the, you know, the classic families of American politics, Clinton, Bush, maybe Obama, and, uh, and back to other classic families of American politics like uh, Trump and Kennedy, which would be great. Um, but it's, um, do I think that it would throw the presidency to Trump? I, I don't know that, that it would. Because I think that there's an equal likelihood that, that some Trump voters go to RFK, actually. Tony says, hey, Ben, big fan and supporter of all your team does at The Daily Wire. Question for you about public sector unions. I agree with you. By their very nature, they are insidious and often do not have the public's best interest in mind when bargaining. However, how do you square this with legitimate value unions like the Fraternal Order of Police? Often the FOP and similar groups are the only thing protecting police officers from anti-police politicians, overzealous prosecutors, and others with improper motives. I have a hard time considering the FOP in the same ilk as the teachers' union. I want to make sure I'm being consistent in my reasoning when arguing against public sector unions. Well, the truth is that even police public sector unions are very often striking against the public interest. You'll sometimes see police unions. I mean, this happened in New York, actually. It's illegal, but they would do it. Uh, sometimes they would go on strike. That's not in the public interest. Now, as a protector of the police forces who are now being assaulted by political actors— that's true. But I think that what that actually does is it prevents the public from seeing the consequences of the politicians they elect. So if, for example, the police did not have a union and they were just subjected to the predations of the politicians, there just would be no police officers. Right? The unions are actually acting as a bulwark against bad politicians, which is good for the members of the police right now, obviously. But I think that the public should see full scale its own bad policies. The, the truth is that there should be laws in place to protect police officers and good police officers should be should be rewarded and bad police officers should be fired. So public sector unions, that, that logic exists across, you know, pretty much every public sector union, including, you know, people who I generally love, police officers and firefighters. But the solution to that is electing better politicians. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that unions, unions are a temporary stopgap in the face of, of the predations of politicians who take advantage of them. Julie says, hey, Ben, longtime listener, could you explain the controversy in Alabama with the Supreme Court's decision that the Republican-drawn congressional districts discriminate against black voters? Are they claiming the black vote is being suppressed somehow? Just wondering what district lines have to do with it. So this is the big debate. So the big debate in this particular case is whether there is a, a one majority black district and then there were a bunch of districts surrounding that black district that were carved up in particular ways. 
Black voters in Alabama apparently vote like 91% for the Democrats. So the question is, was this racially discriminatory or politically drawn lines? And the Supreme Court found that it was diluting black voting power. But that's the question that Clarence Thomas asked is, is what do you mean by that? Like compared to what? Are we supposed to say that if 20% of the population of a state is black, that 20% of the reps are supposed to be black? You mean 20% of the districts are supposed to be majority black? Because then that's actually using race as the determining feature of the district, which is illegal under the 14th Amendment. So you actually have to show the discrimination in intent. You have to show that they're attempting to minimize the black vote because they're black, not because they're Democrats, for example. Because Democrats every single time attempt to minimize Republican votes. This is why Clarence Thomas, I think, had the right side of this argument in the Voting Rights Act case. Okay, Josh says, hey, Ben, been subscribed for years, listen daily. One thing I believe is the point is a point of hypocrisy. It's how you focus almost exclusively on trans stuff. You say leftism and transgressivism is, is, transgressivism is a religion and child genital mutilation is one of the outcomes of that religion. What is the difference between them mutilating a young boy's penis and other religions demanding genital mutilation like circumcision of boys? I understand the hygiene argument versus unnecessarily cosmetic. Both groups are minors who are, are, are unable to consent. Uh, you do a lot of things to your kids that are not capable of consent. I don't think that the argument against cutting off a child's genitals uh, is uh, is primarily an argument of consent. I don't think 20-year-olds should be cutting off their genitals. I don't think doctors should be performing genital mutilating surgery on people. Circumcision is not a genital mutilation for males. The reason I say this is because the organ remains fully functional. I know, I have four kids. I'm a Jew, okay? (laughs) It turns out that for literally thousands of years, people have circumcised males in various cultures. They've been having kids. The organ is fully functional and working and does, by some data, reduce rates of things like penile cancer. That is not the same thing as cutting off your testicles and penis. This is like saying that if you have a a surgery to remove some sort of skin tag, this is the same thing as chopping off your arm. Nope, not the same. Also not the same. Female genital mutilation, which is the removal of a fully functional organ for no purpose other than to make a woman suffer. These things are not in remotely the same category and grouping them together on the basis of, well, you know, the kid can't consent. Kids don't consent to to pretty much anything. That's not, again, that's not the question. The question is, is there an inherent evil and harm that is done to the child through this act? And the answer for circumcision for males is no. All righty, we've reached the end of this mailbag. So we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.